Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now listen, learn, and lead are three things that have often been forgotten in a world that is less about compromise and more about conflict. That is the view of my guest today, Alison Goldsworthy, the CEO of the Depolarization Project. Formed from an initiative at Stanford University in 2016, Alison and her team are looking to tackle one of the ultimate questions of our time. Why in the world are we so divided? Perhaps the answer starts within, and why the top tip from my guest today is that no one, and I mean no one, should have more control over how you feel than you do. Ali, welcome to Changemakers. How are you feeling? I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good today, actually. Yes, it's a delight to be here and to be chatting to you, and thank you for that um, lovely introduction. Absolute pleasure. I mean, in terms of this, this sort of like this top tip that you gave us about that, that no one um, should have more control over how you feel than you do. I mean, presumably that's one of the things you're observing in your work on on depolarization, which we'll get to, which is that people are having an influence on our mood, on our thinking. Is is that is that where we should start the story? Do you think? Oh, oh yes, potentially. So I think people are a product, and I'm the same as everybody else here, both of who they are and of the environment that is around them. And I think trying to be aware of what is influencing you and how it's trying to control you can be really powerful. Um, I have to say some of that quote came from a a fantastic coach that I have out here. I'm based in California. Um, When I was really struggling to get over something that had really irritated me for a long time. And he just sort of said to me, why is this person getting more control over how you are feeling than you are? And it, I was just like, yeah, damn right. They don't get to do that. You know, (laughs) that is, that is not how this works. And that did really start to influence my thinking and what's going on. So I'm not immune from in any way, like everybody else from other people influencing me. And sometimes they influence me to make me better. I know that might seem a hard thing to do, but it does happen. Um, and and like, I, I'm definitely open to that. But you, you need to be in control of your own life. And particularly, I would say, you know, to any younger listeners, you know, I wasn't great at that when I was younger. And it meant occasionally people took advantage of me when they really shouldn't have done. Why, why, weren't, you, why weren't you great at it, what do you think? Oh, I think I'd, like a lot of people, I'm a people pleaser you know, um, and I wanted to make people happy and that made me feel good. So when someone would ask me to do something, I'd do it even if it wasn't good for me. And over time, you can cede control of your life in a way you probably should never do so. Mm. So, so top top tip for taking control, what, what, what are the, what's something that somebody could do right now to actually say, okay, I, I get it, I'm a people pleaser, so I should do what? Well, the biggest thing actually is recognizing that that's the type of person that you are. You know, and there's loads of really good, like making other people happy is a pretty good, pretty good trait in many situations, but it's just, it's got its downsides. And I would say, think about the patterns and the times when that happens and it really doesn't work out for you. Like when has it been bad and what caused that? And then when you see that happening again, take a pause and a breath before agreeing to do something, because that can engage what's called system two thinking in your brain a little bit more easily. So it's less reflexive how you behave and more thoughtful. And I would say that that's a, a really good thing to use in in many triggering situations in life. Right. Okay. So that's system two thinking. Let's move on to depolarization thinking, because as you mentioned, you're, you're out in, in Silicon Valley. We'll, we'll come um, back to your journey out there, because it strikes me that, you, you know, you had a role as a, a deputy chair of the, of the Liberal Democrats in the coalition government. But there seems to be a lot of that generation that have finished up in Silicon Valley um, 
Nick Clegg, Steve Hilton. I mean, I'm just wondering what the barbecue is like, but we're going to come back to that. Hold that thought, if we will. Let's talk about the depolarization project, first of all, though, because this is something that you launched from work you were doing um, at Stanford. Let's talk about this in terms of listen, learn, and lead. Tell us more. Yeah, so I suppose I was very lucky. I got to do a fellowship at the business school at Stanford, a mid-career fellowship, and work with some amazing faculty and staff there in the aftermath of Brexit and Trump's win. And was really, I guess, horrified by the reaction on campus, and particularly from current and future business leaders, about the Trump win, how surprised they were um, by it, how they caricatured very often Trump supporters, how people couldn't bridge divides. And you sit there in a place where all around you are signs saying change lives, change organizations, change the world. That's the, the motto of the business school. And it really felt like potentially there were a lot of people who may not change it for the better. And how could you try and start to bridge those divides? And that was our instinctive response um, as I suppose as a cohort and within some of the faculty and that did sit in marked contrast to quite a lot of other places so Harvard for example set up a resistance school which is entirely within their remit but that was not the way that I felt was effective to go and I'm sure that's partly influenced you know I'm from a part of South Wales that just voted to leave um, the EU and I, I really resented a lot of friends caricature like my home is suddenly really racist, mm. you know, and, and and that didn't strike me as true. And I could just see the direction of travel from where things were going and wanted to do something about it. Yeah, well, the thing I suppose I'm, I'm sat here thinking about it, I mean, it, it sounds like an amazing project. And of course, you know, it gets to one of the knottiest, most difficult questions of our lives, which is, you know, why, why can't more of us find common cause? You know, I think the, the, the new president talked about, let's, let's give each other um, a chance. I mean, but it, when, you, when you approach this from a, a slightly more academic viewpoint, where this is not only, I suppose, a belief project, but an objectivity project where, you know, I suppose you can't afford to turn up with all the answers before you've worked out what the questions are. How, how does it, how does it sort of, I think you described yourself as a recovering politico in, on, on Twitter. I mean, how, how does that, does that recovering politico actually approach what is a, an academic question about the way we live um, and how we might live together more harmoniously in the future? Well, I suppose the first thing that I'd just pick you up on is no one's objective and that completely includes me. You know, I'm not without my own biases and my own group tendencies that I have. Um, and and I think everybody would do well to remember that <laughs> and, how, and how that affects how they behave. I suppose I, I kind of want to dig a bit more into your question, actually. If I'm honest, one of the things that I've learned to say over the last few years is part of, sometimes I don't know because it's much harder to correct your view once you've said something publicly than it is to just say, I don't know. And we're really terrible at rewarding that. And also sometimes when you don't understand. So, Michael, I don't totally understand your question. Can you say it again in a different way? Well, my question, <laughs> well, my question is, I suppose, is based on a piece of memory I have because I have a role at the University of London. I remember one of one of the dons when I met was to say, he said to me, well, you know, the thing about, about a lot of entrepreneurs is that you, you turn up with answers before you've even asked the question. And it got me thinking in terms of people that I suppose of, are of a more activist bent, is that how do you ensure that many of your preconceived experiences, views and opinions 
um, do not get in the way of what does require, I guess, at least some objectivity in the way that you approach the question of depolarization. Yeah, there should be all sorts of checks and balances that kick in that very often fail to kick in in that sense. So if you are, let's let's work on developing like a new product that you want to take to market or some kind of disruptive thing of which there is an awful lot around where I'm sat in Silicon Valley. Quite a lot of it is not very good. I have to be honest, some of it is amazing. Um, but, um, you know, what you should find is you're looking for a product market fit at that point. And if you can't find a customer base, it's slightly different with B2B work. But if you can't find a customer base for what you're doing, then you shouldn't be able to proceed. And, and you shouldn't really be able to pick up funding. And you shouldn't be able to do all of that kind of stuff. That very often, to be honest with you, is not how it works, particularly at early stages here. People will see talent and bad ideas and they will go for it, or they will see disruption um, and they'll think that is great, or people taking risks and breaking rules. And sometimes that's a fantastic thing to do. Like sometimes mm. rules should be broken, but very often they're done without, you know, people will understandably and investors which is a massive driving force in this space will understandably look for a financial return and they'll check that it doesn't do really obvious damaging stuff to the fabric of society like people are getting better at that i genuinely think that but what they won't do is look at what it's doing to our groupishness and to our polarization as a consequence you know the most famous examples of that are obviously things like facebook and twitter where they didn't bring in social psychologists to look at things until far too late even mm. though there was warnings. And, and I think that is part of the really big challenge that exists in this space. Right. And if you were to give us a working definition of what it means to depolarize, how, how would you explain it? Well, so I suppose the first thing is to talk about what is polarization before you talk about what is depolarization. And when I talk about it, I mean it in terms of people feeling an increasing allegiance to their own group and particularly to a political political group. Often it can be a political label of convenience. And I draw that distinction from like issue polarization quite deliberately. So, and they're quite separate. You can disagree vehemently about things like free trade, but feel a much bigger loyalty to your party membership or whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer or a Democrat or a Republican or all of those kind of things. And so what is depolarization? It's about trying to enable those different groups to recognize that there can be merit in working together you can increase the pie by doing so and that actually sometimes somebody from a different tribe might have a better idea to you or one that's rooted in different experiences so this is about being open-minded yeah it is about it's about being open-minded but um it's also about about more than that. It's about recognizing that other people might have had a different experience and come to different solutions as a consequence. And that can be a legitimate and good thing. And open-mindedness also clearly involves me, meaning not just other people might have different ideas, but that maybe you might be wrong. Mm. I mean, and, and where you're sitting with the project at the moment, I mean, in terms of where, where we are on, on I, I guess, the kind of the swing between a a world that is polarizing further and one that is depolarizing in, in the wake of, I guess, Trump, Brexit, COVID. I mean, what, what's your view about where we are? I mean, it, it, can we actually live in a, a depolarized world with, with that kind of, I guess, sort of trio of challenges, um, you know, to, to, to sort of to work with? 
yes, of course we can live in a depolarized world. I should say that my aim is not to create some boring amorphous blob in the middle, you know, like that is, that is also not democracy or a really good functioning society, but it is about where people on the whole can work for each other. I'm, and, and you go through cycles of polarization and depolarization in, in the UK, you look at the eighties with Thatcher and the unions and then actually how people came together under Blair initially under the third way, you know, like that's a normal pattern and part of history. Um, I do feel pretty bleak at the minute, I have to say. Um, and the UK and the US are not even the worst examples in the world of polarization. Um, but part of the reason that I'm worried it's going to get worse is the factors that trigger it are things like rising inequality or rising unemployment. And what is going to happen because of COVID? Well, both of those things are going to go up and they're going to get worse. And it's going to make a recipe that is already fermenting pretty hard and induced by things like social media and online activism and which both can have their plus points but it's all making for a situation where society fragments rather than comes together i'm just thinking my my guest next week is the is the greek economist yanis varifakis and he's written of what he calls the centrist delusion that the middle ground of politics isn't moderate, it's dangerous, uh, you know, there isn't safety in the centre. I mean, is where you're heading in this project to try and drive a more centrist view of the world? I'm thinking, you know, the whole 2015 Liberal Democrat campaign of, you know, what was it sort of think left, think right, you know, put your cross on the on the liberal democrats i mean is, is that is that is, is this just taking that ideal you know into a more academic setting or or is it something different this time do you think i think it's fair to say i'd left the lib dems before that particular storming political trial <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad I mean, you said that was it <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't a wild electoral success, was it? Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I definitely had some involvement in the coalition. But, but are you uh, a delusional centrist, Ali? I mean, I suppose that that's what, you know, to, to misquote Yanis Varoufakis. Um, no, no, I don't think, I certainly am not delusional. I'm not even certain I'd always say I'm a centrist. I'm rather fond of being quite naughty myself. But um, uh, the... The, the point is, is that you do need a ground somewhere for compromise. Otherwise, what you tend to get is gridlock and you don't really necessarily get advancement, certainly not in the day to day. You can get some jumps and some leaps that come from uh, from places that are not the center ground. And thank God we've had some of them. You know, it didn't used to be a mainstream thing to be pro-choice on women's issues or to be in favor of gay marriage and some polarization is a is a good thing and a necessary thing for activists. What I'll say about Greece um, is that they have had particularly acute problems with polarization that has led at points to violence on the streets. And I think that that should probably be avoided. And I don't think that should be a radical suggestion. Um, more than that, the history of Greece is, is complicated. But in recent times, there's been a lot of them and us divides, you know, like so who aren't aware, things like the Civil War, where they burn all of the war records to get rid of the history from how people have behaved and in the aftermath of World War II. I mean, there's a reason that some of the best thinking about depolarization comes from people who are from Greece and from Turkey. And that is because they have seen the consequences and how that has manifested in terms of violence, war and social inequality. And so, no, I don't agree with him in any way. But I suppose at the heart of, you know, what 
what he would would say is that you know as a as a key contrarian is that is that you know the the the, the key to progress is is a certain element of struggle that actually is not easy that actually you know the 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 sort of the the duvet blanket of us all being polite with each other but underneath the surface are huge levels of of inequality and problems is that we just don't really speak it if we head back towards this kind of depolarized world where it's more in equilibrium i mean do you have some sympathy that 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 today's kind of and i'm just i'm struggling for the word because if it's not centrist what is it but 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 the person at the center of the fulcrum is that they've also got to be you know they they've got to use language that connects they've got to they've got to react to the world that they see around it with all of its extremes i mean is is that part of the project as well yeah that is part of the project and language can certainly be um an effective part of it what i definitely do not seek to do is to stop people being awkward because i think that that is a really important and critical part of a functioning democracy and of change and bringing things about you know and i my background you know like i was part of the awkward squad i used to work professionally like as a troublemaker as a as a movement builder and a rabble rouser and i was pretty good at it and part of the reason i was attracted to this was that i realized that i'd been persuading millions of people on a very regular basis to take action and binding them to certain ideas identities often against people and, and and very often people find it easier to define themselves as what they're not so I hate all those bloody Tories I hate all those nationalists I you know would it whichever way you want it to be rather than do a positive identification and I'd done a lot of that and brought about a bunch of change as a consequence and not once not once had I thought about had I had any negative side effects and did I need to tidy them up and that is something that I think the comm sector completely misses you know when you you ruthlessly target people you're only interested in their responses and what about the people who might be losing out and how are you going to try and build those divides afterwards and people don't answer those questions but but i'm interested does does the alley of then who was the rabble rouser who who did see you know a fairly vivid sense of right and wrong heroes and villains i mean does does the depolarization project does that does that make it a murkier job and i i suppose what i'm thinking here is that you know you're living in a country which, which seems to be you know in in many ways the the case study of polarization right now where you've got 73 million you know donald trump voters 79 million joe biden voters at the at the at the last count this is a very split society where finding common cause seems almost mission impossible, doesn't it? Well, it depends a bit where you are. And I just pick you up slightly like about how media narratives can distort things. Yes, America is polarised and in some particularly unusual and binary ways because there's only two parties here, for example, to choose from. But actually, if you look at an international level, America is less polarised than many places in Southern Europe. Greece, Spain, Italy, you know, are all much worse. And the UK is about on the same place as Canada and, and America. So, like, I think... It's easy for, for you know, Brits love a good American election <laughs> and, and watching it. Well, <laughs> but, well we do, like, but, but, the whole, but the whole world watches, right? I mean, you know, because in, in many respects, I mean, America still still stands for the dream. It still stands for many of those positive values, I guess, that, that people really buy into when, when, they've, when they've thought about the States. But, but, but I suppose the recent past has been the story of, of division. I mean, you know, your, your website, really interesting 
um, stat here I thought was that 55% of US progressives say a vote for Trump would strain a friendship. I mean, how does that country find friendship and what's the lesson for the rest of us? Well, and I think, to be honest with you, the stats actually get more scary since you've seen that about how they spill over into other parts of life. So things like parents are more likely to get their child vaccinated if the person they voted for became president. You know, um, you are more like there's some evidence I'm slightly wary about how I use this, but that discrimination for job applicants is greater now in the US on the basis of political allegiance than on your race. That um, people, even people who think that they're really smart and free of these biases, like people at ratings agencies like Moody's, there's a 2.4% variance in what they would give in likely investment amounts, um, depending on whether their co-partisan is present. I mean, like it affects, infects every single part of life, both here and and around the world. And that's what I call pernicious polarization and when it needs to be tackled. That, you know, like robust political debate, I'm all for it. I think it's great. But when it hits those those levels, it becomes really difficult. You, you asked me about, is it possible to find common ground within that? Yes, yes, it can be. But it gets increasingly hard to do so the longer it's left to fester. And, and I suppose as you're speaking, I'm thinking about that ultimately at the heart of depolarization is the commitment to the truth. Um, and, you know, what, whether the truth be about elections and promises made or vaccines and an end to a pandemic is that that, 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 that kind of reconnection with facts rather than feelings feels like an important part of it. But I'm also, I'm saying, thinking, well, where do you start with a project like that where, where the truth seems to be so so subjective and so based on what we feel at the moment. So just to pick you up on a couple of things there, you talked about, you know, we need to reconnect with facts rather than feelings. Actually, we need to connect with both of them, right? That it's not a one or other. And I think, you know, people who live in the kind of world that you do, you know, doing amazing comms campaigns, it's worth looking at that. And also truth, in some cases, it is an absolute, you know, like does something work? Is it proven to work? But sometimes it's not. And people's own experience can deviate so far from what they're being told that they find it really hard to perceive things accurately. And, and more than that, I think people need to be slightly careful about how they use truth, you know. So a lot of people loved Kamala Harris's speech when she talked the other day. And I feel like a, a quite a lonely voice who didn't love it. Because what she basically said was, we campaigned for truth, as in all you other people who voted for Donald Trump, you voted for lies, you're liars, you're stupid, you fell for them. And that is not a way to bridge divides. You know, when have you ever managed to bridge a divide by telling someone that they're a liar or that they're stupid? Like, that is not how it works. But I suppose the thing is, is that you are, you know, you, you are in the middle of a of a war of implacable foes in 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 this debate in the states, aren't you? In terms of that that sort of, you know, because because presumably is that you know you you put some of these stats up because you see them as the wrong way to go. Yeah, I mean, I do think that they're the right. I think uh, I think it's hard to have a functioning society if there are groups of people who simply can't work together, don't want to fall in love, get different medical treatment. Like, how how can you function long term in that way? Now, because of the structures and things that are built up, like actually the cost of fighting and society completely breaking down is is quite high. So I think it will take 
quite a long time for things to get to a very, very bad level. But that is where they're sliding unless action is taken to try and turn it around. And when you look at something like the pandemic and how that has affected the issue of polarisation, I mean, obviously, over here in the UK, we had the first lockdown and there was there was some evidence of, of uh, you know, nation very much together in terms of, you know, weekly collapse of the NHS, lots of lots of sort of, I guess, community. In terms of the overall experience, now that this is dragging on into a much longer play, I mean, how, how do you see it um, affecting the work that, that you're looking at in terms of the long-term consequences? Um, so I suppose what should happen is exactly what you were talking about at the start, this thing called a superordinate goal. So like a, a bigger thing, a common enemy that people can fight against, people can in effect what's called rally around the flag, So, which is exactly what happened. Um, I'm less confident about how this is going to manifest in the long run, to be honest with you. Um, as people, you know, it's a hard thing to ask people to do some of the lockdown. It's all right for me and you. We look like we're both sat in our homes, which are, are pretty, pretty nice, you know. The screensaver, and, uh, Ali. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, and it's got a lovely lamp on it. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, for a lot of people, that's not their experience. And, you know, you look at just, you know, it, it's slightly boring to talk about things like public sector debt that are having to be taken on and are going to need to be repaid back. And the consequences, the political consequences of who gets prioritized and who doesn't, or who you trust as your messenger and who you don't, and the compliance or not. And you can see there's work more out here in the States than elsewhere. But like, you know, voting um, intention and compliance and how people are using that. It's difficult. And it is, I do recognize it's tricky for politicians who are seeing people become destitute, like really struggle, even though they're putting in aid packages and wildly want to reopen the economy so that people can get back on their feet and try and do that. And then some people die. And like, I think that's a very, very tricky place for people to be in, but it is dividing to a certain extent along party lines and also party lines on on who people trust mm. as their messenger, you know, and I think that becomes very difficult. And the thing I'm thinking about is that, you know, so much of the language of polarization seems to be hardwired into so many different areas. And I'm just thinking about, you know, business where, you know, this is not necessarily about building bridges, but when you hear words like insurgent, disruptor, contrarian, those are the badges of honors of of a of an entrepreneurial world. I mean, do, do you think are they a wrong turn, or or or, or actually, do you, do you see that there is a um, um, a place for that kind of that kind of worldview? I guess. Well, uh, I mean, I guess I can say that this from here. A lot of the time, I find when people use use those words, they're not really being disruptive or innovative, and it's a load of ropey old bollocks, you know. <laughs> and and that that mummy or daddy has given them half a phrase, mil. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Okay, you can see why I went down a storm at Stanford. Um, <laughs> You know, and it's like mummy or daddy supporting people doing things. You do then get within that excellent people. And I have, you know, less issue with some of that, you know, and how people want to do things. Because it is sometimes how change happens. What really bothers me is when people claim that they're democratizing things, when really they are doing the exact opposite, you know. Like, you are not, Facebook is not democratizing the planet because what's actually happened is a huge amount of data has ended up in the hands of one company and particularly of one man in one company who's done a, a, a pretty amazing job of growing it and of arranging board governance so that he can retain control but there is not users do not have more control over their life than they used to mm. he now owns that in a way that 
either previously didn't exist or it used to be between many different businesses. And it, it is really interesting to me how you, you bring up how like this might manifest in a business context. A lot of the work that we're increasingly getting and talking to people about is businesses who just don't know how to handle an increasingly polarized workforce and how to try and have those discussions and bring people with them and maintain efficiency, partly because people, as we've siloed, have lost practice at talking to people who are politically different to them. Right. This does speak to this kind of like this, this almost like warfare between the generations that, that, that you now see in terms of different outlooks, different views. I mean, in the world of work, this this is a, a major issue, um, I think, in terms of how people actually find common cause in the future in the businesses that they work in. Yeah, no, and I think it's a a huge challenge. And more than that, there's quite a bit of evidence that shows that politically diverse groups are more innovative. So you should be able to get a competitive advantage by having a diverse group. Yet you never, ever see people think about that in terms of diversity and inclusion stats. We were talking to a very senior business leader in the UK the other day and, um, you know, sort of said to him, have you ever thought about this? And he was like, no, it's really important, I think, about gender or race diversity. But actually, it can be quite easy to have a gender or racially diverse room and think it's diverse on all sorts of other areas when really what you've done is narrowed in um, because people don't think about diversity in as broad a spectrum. They're kind of like, right, job done now. We've got some women in here. We've got some people who probably aren't white. It's probably what racial diversity means. Um, and going from there, and really the job is not done and they are missing out on competitive advantage and making their lives harder as a consequence. Yeah, I, I really agree. And I, I think the rewiring of, of the dialogue, I mean, we're running, fast running out of time, Ali. And I'd say a couple of things I do want to cover. I mean, we mentioned those kind of like Silicon Valley expats sort of like all, all, I mean, all you politicos seem to have gone gone to the valley. Nick, Nick Clegg, Steve Hilton, I mentioned. I mean, do you do you ever check in together? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, actually, I mean, like, I, I help run Nick's leadership campaign. So does, does Nick does Nick bring a pack of Coors Light to the to the um, to the Barbie? No, no, I did have. Um, uh, I won't. I won't say everyone who came. We did have a bonfire night out here the other day, which I have to say, try when you try and explain bonfire night and Guy Fawkes to someone who's not British, you realise it's not the best tradition and is really quite anti-Catholic. But, but you know, we were like, maybe we'll burn a troll, not an effigy of Guy, from now on. That will be like a, a sensible thing to do. But yeah, there is there's a community here, and we do get to know each other. I like to think, you know, I was one of the first year I came in 2016. Uh, and did that but there is you know it's year-round sunshine it's higher salaries I can go and surf in the morning and ski in the afternoon I mean like if you're going to get a break from the UK now is quite a good time to do it it strikes me that you know I, I loved reading your backstory and and I and thank you for the lockdown list ideas that accompany this episode and and again I mean I looked at your music taste wham girls aloud Tori Amos I thought this is somebody I'm going to get on with. For many others, I'm sure those are polarizing tastes um, in music, but it strikes me that there is a great sense of fun and humor to you, and that that is also part of what it takes to cool the world down. Yeah, actually, humor is tremendously important, and culture can be really important. It's hard to measure, but... Um... Like if if I suppose if I say to your listeners, think about a time you've changed your mind, right? And what helped you identify that maybe you've got something wrong? 
And very often someone helping you laugh at yourself a little bit has been a really powerful motivator in doing that. And there's some great, I can drop some links in some great work done by people at, at Cambridge Uni um, about this with what's called bad news quiz, which is kind of a funny way for people to identify fake news and admit that maybe they might have got something wrong with it they fell for. And it's really, it's really smart. If anyone was a fan of the game Monkey Island as a kid, it reminds me of the humor in that a lot. Um, and I do think it's tremendously powerful and you know being impish is probably one of my strengths at working in this sector ali we have to leave it there things can only get better now that wasn't on your playlist but i mean it was dream and one that you know do you remember the, the chorus of that teach me to walk your path and to wear your shoes and what a what a path we've been on with my guest today alison goldsworthy who's looking as you say you didn't come up with it looking left looking right but bringing perhaps all all sides together in her work on the depolarization project. A really sort of superb conversation and lots of, I guess, clues about where some of the answers to these big questions might be. And we'll be back together um, for the next edition of Changemakers. And I very much hope you can join me then.